0: Um, Welcome this morning to a a new uh, series in our adult education uh, courses. We're calling it Talking Points because we're wanting to just briefly jump into a bunch of different topics um, that are coming up over and over in news and in society right now. And we're going to think about each of these topics from a, a Christian perspective, from a Christian point of view, obviously. So as you see on the outline there for the class, Um, We'll begin these first few weeks by building a a framework, what is a a Christian worldview, and how to engage culture and even interpret the news in light of that. And then we'll move into um, a series of sexual issues, homosexuality, transgender, pornography, sexual harassment, um, and then talk about racism, refugees and immigration, uh, religious freedom, gun control, uh, politics, um, technology, so we'll stay away from the debatable issues and just stick to the straightforward things. Um, but on each of these topics, you know, there's a ton that could be said, obviously. What we're trying to do specifically is to build a Christian worldview and then apply that worldview to each of these topics. Um, so in that sense, the class hopefully will be uh, somewhat suggestive to you about how to exercise a Christian worldview um, when thinking about each of these things. So this morning we're going to begin by establishing just what it means to think Christianly. What is the Christian mind and uh, and how do we build a Christian worldview? So first of all, what is a worldview? Al Walters said that a worldview is the comprehensive framework of our belief about things. It's how we frame the universe and the human situation. Um, so as uh, so that as we think about uh, the world and everything in it, all that exists, uh, we have a, a sort of framework for interpreting that data. As C.S. Lewis put it, uh, what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you are standing. and It also depends on what sort of person you are. What sort of people are we and from where are we standing and looking at the world? So it's our interpretation of things. You know, two people can look at the same data and interpret it very differently. Um, As ultrasound technology has developed, it has transformed the debate about abortion. Is that a human being in the womb? And to many, uh, that seems like an undeniable, yes, of course it is. And yet uh, others look at the same ultrasound image, that little baby kicking its legs, sucking its thumbs, and still say, no, it's not a human. Uh, Why is that? How could that be? That is the power of a worldview. It powerfully shapes the way that we interpret the data that's right in front of us. And then we say worldviews are partly conscious and partly not, partly conscious and partly subconscious. Much of the way that we view the world uh, consists of deeply ingressed beliefs, things that are, are deeply embedded in our hearts, sort of habits of thinking and, um, and habits of the heart that are buried so deep that we're barely even conscious of them. We haven't necessarily thought the whole thing out. It's more intuitive. And so there can be competing worldviews even within uh, one person. For instance, a person may be um, passionately against the invasive Big Brother sort of system. And yet, a recent study indicates that the average smartphone owner touches their phone about 2,617 times uh, a day. And, uh, And so you may say that um, technology is unwelcome. Uh, The subconscious worldview, however, is that pervasive technology is is really a good thing, uh, that it's helpful, that it's desirable. And then similarly, worldviews are partly theoretical and partly um, functional or embodied so it's, it's not just a worldview, is not just a, a tightly fitting um, system or a, uh, a matrix of uh, thoughts and philosophies, but it's also this mix of actions and responses and lifestyles that we each have. Um, so a couple authors together put it this way, worldviews are best understood as we see them incarnated, fleshed out in actual ways of life. They are not systems of thought like theologies or philosophies. Rather, worldviews are perceptual frameworks. They are ways of seeing. Um, So theoretically, one may say, love your neighbor as yourself, and yet functionally the same person may advocate an immigration policy that seems inconsistent with love your neighbor as yourself. Or a person may think of suicide as a tragedy, uh, and yet, the same person might think of physician assisted suicide as compassionate in some circumstances, so a worldview is a framework for processing the human universe and our situation in it and uh, and it may be partly conscious, partly subconscious, partly theoretical, partly functional and obviously there are there are deeply divided. Uh, views on which framework is the right one. There are two great options that stand at odds in the West today, uh, secularism and Christianity, or you might say naturalism and supernaturalism. So what, what is secularism? Well, Al Mohler sums up secularism. He says, secular in terms of contemporary sociological and intellectual conversation refers to the absence of any binding theistic authority or belief. So secular is the rejection of transcendence. It's living in the imminent frame, as one author put it. It's a very earth-bounded sort of view of things. Jean-Francois Lyotard called it incredulity toward meta metanarratives, um, a skepticism about any kind of overarching explanation of the world and all that's in it. Uh, so looking to explain... Um, The world and all the dynamics that exist in the world um, totally without reference to God. Nothing points to the creator in in any sort of way. There's no power outside of the universe. And it's um, this material bound sort of perspective that has come to predominate in the West over and against Christianity. Christianity. In 1898, um, in a series of lectures, so right at the turn of the century, in a series of of lectures delivered at Princeton Theological Seminary, Abraham Kuyper, who is uh, kind of a giant in regards to worldview thinking, um, said this. It's a quote that's on your handout there so you can follow along. It's a little bit longer. But he says, There is no doubt that Christianity is imperiled by great and serious dangers. to life systems, or life and worldviews, are wrestling with one another in mortal combat. Modernism is bound to build a world of its own from the data of natural man and to construct man himself from the data of nature. While on the other hand, all those who reverently bend the knee to Christ and worship him as the son of the living God and God himself are bent upon, this, upon saving the Christian heritage this is the struggle in Europe. This is the struggle in America. And this is also the struggle for principles in which my own country, the Netherlands, is engaged and in which I myself have been spending all my energy for nearly 40 years. So 120 years ago, Kuiper uh, was scanning the horizon and saw these dark clouds. There was this mortal combat, as he puts it, between these two life systems or life and worldviews. And in many ways, the the political and societal tension and upheaval and conflict that we feel is related to this underlying conflict of worldviews. Our society has been trending secular since the Enlightenment uh, 500 years ago, and now at last, society is widely um, renegotiating the boundaries of morality and meaning. So as erosion... Of divine authority continues that the locus of authority is shifting from divine authority to the autonomy of the individual, the autonomous self. So one author said that the key to understanding the theme of modernity is this, that modern people believe we are our own authority. We are our own authority. And that's the key as he sees it to understanding secularism or or modernity. Tim Keller says, no longer do we think of ourselves as merely having the power to discover moral reality and truth. We think we have the power to actually create it. Um, So you you may be familiar with this uh, famous line from the opinion of the Supreme Court in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, captures this principle well. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of life. The heart of liberty, the right to define one's own concept of all these things. And so you see clearly in that, in that idea the, um, the locus of authority shifting uh, from divine or something transcendent, a metanarrative, to each individual and his view of things. So this is why for, for so many uh, today, religious faith in something beyond uh, the immediate, the imminent, seems unimaginable and even crazy. So secularism used to be a minority view. Um, so theists, Christians like us, you know, kind of societally speaking felt safe because they had a statistical advantage, uh, a moral majority, uh, but that, that position of strength has, has faded, and now uh, the, the playing field is, has been leveled to some extent, perhaps even a slight majority towards secularism, because even those who statistically count as Christians um, are often viewing things from a secular point of view, through secular lenses. And so the tensions are as great as they've ever been. And it's, uh, it's difficult to negotiate the boundaries of society when there are these <clears throat> deeply conflicting views of the world. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, the, the Christian and the materialist, which would be like a secular mind, the Christian and the materialist hold different beliefs about the universe. They can't both be right. The one who is wrong will act in a way which simply doesn't fit the real universe. And what we've got going on in the United States is basically two halves of the nation pointing their fingers at the other half, saying they don't fit the universe. Uh, they don't fit the way things really are. And, that, and that's basically the, the worldview explanation for our, our current experience as a society. As Christians, we, we want to do a good job at understanding both sides. Uh, Harry Blemier's argues that we must think Christianly about all things right down to gas pumps, and we we want to think like good Christians. He says there's nothing in our experience, however trivial, worldly, or even evil, which cannot be thought about Christianly. We want to think about all things Christianly, and yet We also want to understand the secular. So as another scholar pointed out, Christians will be most effective when they understand not only their own worldview, but also other views competing for the contemporary mind. But we'll begin in this kind of 13-week endeavor uh, with understanding the Christian mind or the Christian worldview. So what is uh, the Christian worldview? Well, Harry Blemers, who I just mentioned, wrote a book called The Christian Mind. And he says that the essence of the Christian mind is supernaturalism, uh, supernaturalism, believing in the transcendent. Uh, I think that's exactly the right starting point, but many Christians have recognized, though, that the basic storyline of the Bible actually provides uh, the basic framework of a Christian worldview, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, uh, where we come from, uh, what went wrong, how things can be recovered, and then what happens to all of it and to us in the end. So Dorothy Sayers said, the dogma is the drama. The dogma is the drama. Meaning that um, the Christian, Christian doctrine is, is shaped by all the elements of a great story. The dogma is the drama. And yet, uh, and, and this story then is the narrative that we use to interpret all of life. We, we look at the world and everything in it through uh, the framework of this, this story. Leslie Newbigin said, the Christian story provides us with such a set of lenses, not something for us to look at, uh, but something for us to look through. So this means that we as Christians have deep resources in Scripture uh, for understanding purpose, uh, distortion, and destination, uh, creation, fall, and redemption and restoration. And this is thinking in Christian categories, and my hope is that we'll be able to um, survey these categories this morning and then apply them as we cover various topics over the next few months in this class. So that's where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning, beginning with creation. Uh, Where did we come from? The Creator made humans in His own own image uh, to rule over and take care of His creation for His glory. The Creator made humans in His own image to rule over and take care of His creation for His own glory. So Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that is foundational for the Christian worldview. Uh, Jesus is actually not the starting point of Christianity. God is. God as creator, specifically. There is a creator, which means that every aspect of creation is imbued with both purpose or direction, as well as moral responsibility. So you might think of it this way. There's a giant arrow pointing back to God uh, in everything in creation. Everything ought to be oriented to him. Uh, toward him to give him glory the birds have an arrow pointing back to God so do the clouds the beluga whales one of my favorites and everything else in creation uh, has a giant arrow pointing back to God human sexuality in general and sexual intercourse in particular giant arrows pointing back to God we all have these arrows in us there is purpose or direction we're for God's glory. And there's also moral responsibility. We're accountable to the creator for the way that we live and interact with the rest of creation. So a little further along, in the first chapter, Moses says this. This is Genesis one twenty six through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over So humans are made in God's image. This is unique to humanity, setting humanity apart from the rest of creation. Um, so humans are the um, most developed species and con- the, the most developed within a species. That concept is rejected uh, by the Bible. Not simply the most developed within a spe- uh, of the species, but rather um, separate from, uh, unique to creation. And, and made in God's image includes being made as two people, not one. Uh, so the Trinity creates a dyad, male and female, he created them. And then that couple functions together in perfect harmony and unity to do two things. Um, to rule over creation uh, and, then, and then to steward or to preserve and take care of creation. So again, the creator has made humans in his image to rule over and take care of his creation for his glory. So what, what went wrong? Well, there are several reasons why things went so wrong, but really one reason. So f- first of all, the serpent was crafty. Uh, Genesis 3.1 says, the serpent was crafty. Very simple statement about the context of the fall. The serpent asked Eve to look at things from a different perspective. Uh, God said all the arrows point back to him. What if they don't? What if the arrows point back to you? What if they point in some other direction? What if the fruit really is for you, not for God? This is subversion. This is like the ultimate disinformation campaign. You think Russia meddled with the U.S. elections. This is Satan tampering with God's word, subverting what God had said. The serpent was crafty. Second, the fruit was beautiful. So this is chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. The tree was good. It was to be desired. It was a delight to the eyes. God's creation is, is beautiful, and we should affirm that. The fruit, the tree, were not the problem. It was good. It was, a, it was good. A d- delight to the eyes. It was to be desired. Which leads to this third point, that humans desire deeply. Humans desire deeply. We learn later on in the Bible story that this is actually called um, worship. But here we see this functioning, even if not named, this capacity to desire deeply that the Bible calls uh, worship. So think about Eve for a second. She must have, generally speaking, she must have wanted to obey God, right? She was wired for joy in God. Uh, She had been enjoying him already. And she didn't think of breaking God's law all on her own. But when the crafty serpent reframed the situation to her, she developed almost immediately a deep desire that was at odds with God's direction. Her eyes were enticed, her heart desired self-advancement to become wise, and she broke God's law. One of the best places in scripture to see this principle worked out is in Romans 1 that we looked at recently on Sunday morning. Where Paul says, uh, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So Paul, here in Romans, and and really all of the the New Testament authors uh, give a name to Eve's action. They call it idolatry. Uh, Anytime there's a creature-creator swap, they're exchanged. Uh, That's idolatry. So when you let some inward action, or some inward desire, that is, or some action dominate, uh, you, rather than being governed by the will of the creator, you have misdirected creation. You are not living the way you were supposed to live. You're not being fully human in all the ways that God designed you and meant you to be human. Arrows of intention then are pointing away from God. We misdirect God's creation towards ourselves or t- towards other ends. So rather than worshiping God, we worship something that he created. These are the only two basic categories, God and creation, the creator and the created. There's God. And then there's everything that he created, which is separate from him. And this is incredibly basic to the worldview. There are these two categories, and exchanging them is the basic problem of humanity. And the the consequence of that treasonous swap then for, for Adam and Eve is that the dynamics of death were ushered into the human home. Adam and Eve invited death in. Again, in Romans 1, Paul says, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. So death is, is the ultimate consequence, but there's also all these dynamics of death that are pervasive in creation. So Paul says in Romans 8, creation was subjected to futility and bondage to corruption. Um, so all kinds of dynamics that go along with death, corruption, futility, loss, toil, pain, conflict, relational conflict, class conflict, so, so part of the Christian worldview is that all that is not right in the world uh, can be traced back to this first creature-creator creator, uh, creator, creator swap. And then that can be traced forward into billions of identical transactions ever since. Uh, we've been making that, that same exchange over and over again. So what the devil did there in the garden in reframing things uh, to make Eve reject the creator's intention and point arrows away from him rather than toward him, uh, that's the basic plot ever since. Uh, C.S. Lewis in insightful words, which Lewis's words always are, says about the post-fall situation, there is no ground in the universe uh, that is neutral. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Um, so we have direction, creation, and we have distortion. Can there be recovery? How can things be put right? Well, the storyline of the Bible says that very early on, God set in motion a plan to recover, to redeem a people for Himself, who would live under His rule and enjoy His blessing. They'd live under His law and experience blessing from him. So think about what happened with the nation of Israel. Um, God rescued a nation out of slavery, and he brought them out, made them his own, showed them how to live, and promised his blessing to them. And that's redemption, uh, taking what is broken and blind and enslaved and setting it free and making it whole and giving it sight. And this is what Jesus does for all God's people, not just ethnic Israel, as Tom was mentioning this morning, but this is an offer that extends to all people. Uh, Paul says to the Colossians, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he tells the church in Corinth, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away and behold, all things have become new. Think about Jesus' message. When he comes, uh, Mark says that he came proclaiming the kingdom. He says in Mark chapter 1, the kingdom of God is at hand. And life in the kingdom, the kingdom of God, what is that? Life in the kingdom, it's, it's the place where... God governs. It's the place where His rule is acknowledged, and people submit to him. And so life in the kingdom then becomes a place where all the arrows point back to God, where broken relationships are mended, where generosity is displayed, where all are accepted, healing is experienced, and, and most of all, more than anything else, God's people delight in Him. and that's what the kingdom of God is. And in God's kingdom is where we get the clearest glimpse of what it means uh, to be God's people. What things were meant to be like in the beginning and what things will definitely be like in the end. So in the kingdom of God, we're learning to be people, slowly but surely, we are learning to be people who point arrows back to God. God made us with a strong sex drive and we point that arrow inward towards self-indulgence. God teaches us to point that arrow back to him, to enjoy the gift according to its design and for his glory. Some of you may know the story of uh, Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, The 32nd version is that she was a a lesbian professor of of women's studies at Syracuse University. She was kind of at the epicenter of secular feminism. Uh, She happened to establish contact through correspondence with uh, with a pastor and eventually began a, began having dinners with him and his wife and uh, she eventually converted uh, to Christianity and now lives over in Durham she's a pastor's wife pastor of First Reformed Presbyterian Church over in Durham a homeschooling mom like like many of you and uh, and and trying to live for the glory of the Lord in all that she does she's written books and speaks you know on on Christianity and and things like this she was She was living contrary to God's creational design and intention. And then upon being redeemed by Jesus, reconciled to God, regenerated by the Spirit, um, she's now seeking to live according to creation's design. And that's what redemption looks like. Uh, we were all living, pointed in whatever direction felt natural to us in a thousand different ways. And then the Spirit opens your eyes to see things from a new perspective, a new world view. Uh, And Jesus forgives your sin, reconciles you to God. And we are seeking to be reconciled to one another then as well. So again, redemption says that God has set in motion this plan to make broken things whole again. Uh, But this is a a work in progress. So in the present age, you do have the kingdom of God, uh, but it coexists with this brokenness. Uh, So from Genesis 3 all the way until Jesus returns, you have dynamics, dynamics of fall and redemption um, operating simultaneously. We see we see that tension in creation itself. You know, just the massive beauty within creation juxtaposed with natural disasters. So you see this tension in creation itself, but we also see this tension in our own hearts. And we all have this capacity for great good and growth and the fruit of the Spirit and all the things that God wants from us. And yet we also have capacity for tragic evil um, and, and, uh, and hurting and wounding others. Out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And so we, we feel a longing that remains in us. We want to see it all made new. We want to see things permanently, not partially, set right and healed. And that's actually the final piece of the, the Bible's story and the Christian worldview, restoration. What happens to all of it in the end? Well, Romans 8, again, Paul says, "...the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God." The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. I don't know what you've heard, but on the day Jesus comes back, planet Earth won't be consumed in a cosmic bonfire. It will be transformed into something better than paradise. It will be set free from its bondage to corruption. In Revelation 21 and 22, uh, John sees this garden-like city, a, a new paradise, He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And then in chapter 22, he says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. John there sees recreation, restoration, renewal of all things. The New Testament is full of these kinds of terms, restore, redeem, reconcile, renew, regenerate. Al Walter points out all these terms suggest restoration of something that was good uh, but spoiled or lost. So in, in light of the fact that God made it in the beginning and in light of the fact that Jesus entered uh, creation as a human and that God is going to transform and renew it all in the end, uh, the Christian worldview then has to constantly affirm the goodness of all created things, uh, but at the same time acknowledge that we tend to misdirect all of creation away from God's intent and design. The project of the Christian then is to redirect back toward God, Uh, to take all that he has made and given and who he has made us to be and turn it back to him uh, and view it for his glory. So that's the concept of a a worldview. So we've just covered what is worldview um, and then tried to show how the Bible story really is a worldview. Next week, we'll talk more about um, secularism. And, uh, and how secularism is this increasingly dominant um, you know, main culture, primary culture that we live in, and then how we as Christians uh, engage in, in this primarily secular culture. And then we'll eventually move on to all the topics that I know are the reason you actually wanted to come to this class to debate all those different things. Um, so as we conclude then, I want to do a little bit of a group exercise. If you break up into groups of four, ideally... Um, it could be uh, two or three, but um, if you can do four, that would be great. And ask, you know, about choose, choose as a group, choose one of these four topics, abortion, marriage and adultery, art, and poverty, and ask, how does the biblical storyline, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, what we just kind of worked through, how does the biblical storyline speak to that issue? Um, so each person in your group, then, if you have four people, uh, will take a different piece of that question. Uh, the youngest person in your group will answer, How does creation, uh, that piece of the story, how does it speak to this issue? Uh, the next young, youngest, the next oldest person in the group um, will do fall. How does fall speak to that issue? Uh, and then the next oldest, uh, redemption. And then the oldest, restoration. Is that clear? Is that crystal clear? No questions about that. Anybody? Yes. Yeah, so your group should just choose one topic. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. Now it's clear. okay. And then each person in your group takes a different piece of the story and answers how is that applied to this issue. So, so the idea is, like, like I say, in the class we're trying to apply this Christian worldview to each topic, so you're going to do that as a group.